just to review what we went over yesterday, we talked about the imprecatory psalms and the psalms that call down curses on people. And, you know, and we're, when we're trying to understand this idea of giving grace and not judging people and not acting in anger, one of the things that we have to do is get rid of this justification that we use. And we say things like, at least I did, well, the Bible shows anger. You know, there's righteous anger. So, you know, the way I'm acting, that's righteous anger. And so we're going to be working on slowly kind of chipping away at that possible justification. So that's what we are building on in today's class. So here we are. We established in the last class that God is a God of vengeance. So now here we are in class number two. And this is the direction that we're going to go with the goal of removing our excuses for judgment and anger and inspiring ourselves to put those things away. So you might remember that yesterday, the main message was that judging is part of God's character. Well, today we're gonna now build on that and say, okay, it's part of God's character. It can't be part of ours. We have to take that away. And the way that we're gonna do it, as we're going to see in the next class today, is that we replace these ideas of anger and judgment with humility. So these are our, our main lessons. And you'll see that each of them builds on judging. So we have judging is part of God's character. And now today, judging should not be part of ours and judging should instead be replaced with humility. Here's the plan for this first class. So this first class is broken into three sections. Um, I don't know about you, but I always think in threes. It's one of those funny things. So, so you will notice that almost every class that we have is going to be broken into three sections. So this first section is about the love of Christ. I think that's really important because where we ended um, yesterday was with some fairly intense statements, you know, that the Lord Jesus made about uh, enter into the, the uh, what was prepared for the devil and his angels, right? I mean, that, it's kind of like, whoa. So we're going to talk about the love of Christ. We're going to discuss how we follow Christ's example. And then how does this all apply to us, right? So we're going to see Christ's love. We're going to see um, the command to follow his example. And then we're going to ask, okay, now how do we apply that today? Again, a reminder, we're going to see in this class that judging should not be part of our character. So that's the main message. And we're going to ask why, you know, I always think we should be asking that question. That's the question that drives Bible study. And it's a very simple why question. Why not? Why should judging not be part of our character? Right? I, I know that that's a double negative, by the way. I'll put that out there. That's okay. <laughs> so why, why should judging, why should judging not be part of our character? That's what we want to think about. So let's go ahead and start with discussing the love of Christ, because this is a really important way to follow up the class yesterday. I think right now we need to affirm that Christ's message was one of love. You know, the Lord Jesus didn't come to judge everybody. Like that wasn't the goal. You know, God wasn't creating a plan in which he could, ha ha, you know, judge all the bad people, right? Like, I mean, that is connected with Christ's mission, but it wasn't the mission. It wasn't the Lord's main message. And I think that that's really important. Uh, the Lord came to preach a time in which people would be free from sin. He came and he did miracles to give them a taste of what that would be like. I mean, that's why we see him called the kingdom of God, 
right? Because being with him was like being in the kingdom. And so he came to affect what that freedom would be like. So in Luke chapter four, you probably, you know, you might remember the story. It's when the Lord Jesus goes to the synagogue. When he's in the synagogue, he goes to the front and he takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. You remember that? He takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he reads it. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And he, and he goes through all these things in this reading that he does of Isaiah chapter 61. Now, that's huge. You know, this is a, a declaration by the Lord Jesus Christ of his mission. Because after he reads these things, he says to the people, this day are these words fulfilled in your hearing. So he says, those words I just read to you about binding up, you know, to heal the brokenhearted, that's what I'm doing right now. And so that is really crucial when we think about, you know, what was the Lord Jesus sent to do? Well, yes, he did have, those imprecatory Psalms are messianic. Yes, they are Christ-like. But when you look at the overall message, we have to reaffirm that, as he said, the Son of Man is not come to destroy, but to save. Now, I think that this is summarized most famously in these verses from John 3. You know, we, we know the verses, but I think it, it's really important as we attempt to understand these imprecatory psalms and anger and judgment to see that this is how John summarizes the Lord's work. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And this part is crucial. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The Lord Jesus came to manifest the character of God, right? God manifestation, not human salvation, was the eternal purpose of the divine spirit. And yet, I think even though that's such an important quote, you know, it's helpful for us to remember that. And yet, he was sent that the world through him might be saved. We can't forget that. That that was the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, he came to show God's character that the end result might be that the world could be saved. So we kind of have two sides here now that we've seen, right? We have the imprecatory Psalms in which the Lord through these Psalms prays things like, let their house be desolate. May their table be a snare. Let them melt like snails. And yet, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. How do these fit together? You know, I think this is one of the most awesome things about Bible study, is that scripture is full of these pieces that you look at that and you think, well, I don't see any way that this can fit with this. <laughs> and you know, that's, this is what Bible study is, where we, where we take these two and we say, how do these harmonize? Because these are both the word of God. These both show the divine mind, and we have to lift our thinking up 
to try and, and realize how is it that our God thinks? How is it that our, our God puts these things together that we just can't seem to understand how they could go together? And so that's what we're going to do today. We want to try and understand a few pieces here as to how can these imprecatory psalms, how can that fit with the love of Christ? Well, we're going to take a look at Christ's enemies first. So that's that's a little piece here of how we're going to build a foundation to understand what's going on and how these ideas can harmonize. So first, let's consider Christ's mission. So when the Lord Jesus sent out his disciples, he gave them a specific charge. So we're going to read this here in Matthew chapter 10. This is when he sent out the 12 disciples to, to preach. And I want you to notice who they were supposed to preach to. The Lord sent his disciples out. Notice who they were supposed to preach to. These 12, Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. But rather, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So you see it there. The Lord Jesus specifically said, I want you to preach to the Jews. Now, that also characterizes Jesus' own ministry. So in Matthew chapter 15, uh, you have that story in which Matthew tells us that a Canaanite woman approached the Lord, which just on its own, by the way, you know, if, if you look at this passage, ever, it's fascinating that Matthew says it's a Canaanite woman because, I mean, Can Canaanites didn't really exist then <laughs> anymore. So uh, that's just an interesting piece, you know, to think about. So the Lord Jesus is in Tyre and Sidon, and he approaches a Canaanite woman. It's the only time he ever leaves Israel. And he goes, uh, this Canaanite woman comes to him and says, heal my daughter because she has an unclean spirit. And the Lord Jesus, do you remember his response to her? He says, I'm not sent, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So this was the Lord's same mission you know he saw his mission as being a mission to jews he says i'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of israel she pleads with him again and he says not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of israel she continues to plead he says it's not right to take the children's food and cast it to the dogs right and the woman says yes lord even the dogs eat the crumbs from the children's table so this is the the, the like one time that the Lord Jesus has these interactions outside of Israel. Now, he does preach to other Gentiles. You know, I think that the feeding of the 4,000 was to Gentiles, uh, and that it was mainly, you know, to teach his disciples that there would be a mission to Gentiles later. He heals the woman's daughter. He then, after that, goes and he feeds the 4,000 uh, to teach his disciples that they would eventually have a mission to Gentiles. But it's very fascinating to see that the Lord Jesus concentrates almost solely on preaching to Jews. And so it's not until after the resurrection that this focus on Gentiles starts. Okay. So that's when, after the resurrection, that he says to the disciples, go ye, that should say therefore, go ye therefore and teach all nations. And then before he ascends to heaven, he tells the disciples, you will be my witnesses to the uttermost part of the earth. So this is when the mission starts to expand, right? Now, Peter, in Acts chapter 3, explains why that was. He explains why the Jews first 
hear about the Lord Jesus, and then later the Gentiles. So notice what he says. He says, Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel, and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers. Now, here we go. Ready? Saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. So there's the mission to everybody, right? But Peter says, unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquity. So Peter says it was first because it's in Abraham's seed that all the earth would be blessed. So it would start with Abraham's family, and then the blessings would go out to the rest of the world. So Jew first, then the Gentile, right? You know, and I recognize this is something that we're fairly familiar with, this idea, Jews first, and then the Gentiles. So, you know, you, you see this throughout Acts and the epistles. The gospel went to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. Okay, you might be wondering, what does this have anything to do with the imprecatory Psalms or with Christ's message of love? Well, I think that this is helpful because once we can establish that the gospel went to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles, we can then ask our favorite question, which is, why did it go when it did? Right? Why did it transition when it did? from the Jew to the Gentile. We already asked, you know, why did the Jew first? But why to the Jew, and then why did it change to the Gentiles? Well, this specific shift from preaching to the Jews to preaching to the Gentiles takes place because of this. This is the Apostle Paul preaching in Galatia. And when he's in Galatia, look at what happens. It says, The next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Now, it's important for us to recognize that there's nuance going on here, right? If you continue reading past Acts 13 and you just sit down and read through Acts, you will see that, in fact, Paul continues to preach to Jews. So Paul is not just saying, I'm done preaching forever to Jews, right? What he's saying is, you group of Jews, called the Jews here in Acts, aren't listening. So therefore, here in Galatia, I'm turning to Gentiles, and that is who I'm going to talk to right now. So this wasn't like a statement on I'm done with you forever or anything like that. But this was Paul explaining, well, you didn't want to hear this, this group here that I'm talking to. And so now I'm turning to the Gentiles. Okay. So a lot of Jews became Christians. Some Jewish sects instead became antagonistic. And that antagonistic is what causes the shift. Now, this is all part of how God intended to work this, right? Romans 11 verse 11 says, through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So that, you know, God through jealousy could provoke the Jews back to him. 
But this is what we want to notice. In Romans 11, Paul says that these Jewish sects that didn't accept the gospel became enemies of the gospel. That's what this is all about. This all this, you know, Jew and Gentile thing that we've been looking at here. This is why it's important. This Jewish, these Jewish sects that rejected the gospel became enemies. And we want to notice that language because without fail, when you look at the imprecatory language in the Psalms that are quoted about the Lord Jesus Christ, that imprecatory language is directed against those groups who became enemies of the gospel because they rejected it. So that's something that I think that is really, really key for us to understand. That, you know, sometimes those who were rejecting the gospel were the religious leaders, right? Well, I should say a lot of times it was the religious leaders. But we also want to notice, you know, sometimes it was the disciples. Here's Matthew 16, 23. You might remember this, right? So Matthew 16, 21 tells us that from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples what things were going to happen at Jerusalem, right? This is Matthew 16, 21 is the first time that the Lord Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die. And so in Matthew 16, 23, it says, then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, right? And he says, this will not be unto you. And that's when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, right? I mean, that's, that's totally imprecatory language. Get behind me, Satan. Like, so we see that, you know, a lot of times the enemies of the gospel are the religious leaders, but sometimes the enemies of the gospel are actually Jesus's own disciples or Gentile Christians. I mean, if you look through the imprecatory language used in the New Testament, I mean, think about Jude. These people are uh, blemishes in your feasts, you know, <laughs> trees without fruit, twice dead. All these things, like that's pretty imprecatory. And that's about Gentile Christians. Revelation 17 and 18. I mean, can you think of any more like intensely <laughs> intense chapters here than Revelation 17 and 18? Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And yet those are towards Gentile Christians. So I think what we can do is we can say, okay, well, in trying to understand this imprecatory language and, and harmonize it with the love of the Lord Jesus, we can say, well, this imprecatory language is not just against anybody, and it's not just against, you know, people that make somebody else mad. This is against people who are specifically standing against the gospel. They're standing against the plan of God. It's not directed towards a specific group, per se, but it's against specific individuals and groups of people that stand against God. So it's, you know, it's multiple groups of people. This doesn't completely answer our questions, right? It doesn't, you know, totally explain to us how these things harmonize, but I think it provides a basis for understanding what's going on. That this imprecatory language is reserved for God's enemies. So that's the first thing that we want to notice. Number one, this imprecatory language is particularly for God's enemies. Here's something else. Jesus's rebukes aren't just one-sided. 
Now, I think that this is fascinating because I'm not sure I could ever do this. <laughs> and, you know, maybe you have like this kind of ability, but uh, this is the kind of thing that to me is mind-blowing. That when the Lord Jesus uses imprecatory language, his attitude is not one of destroy them, ha, 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 because they deserve it. Right? It's not like that. It's destroy them. But I wish it didn't have to be that way. And I think that that's a really, really important piece for us to understand what's happening here. So in Matthew 23, this is when the Lord Jesus censures the Pharisees and the scribes. And so look at what he says to them. You know, this is very imprecatory. He says, wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them ye shall kill and crucify. Some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. And I mean, if I were saying this, I would probably end it with, ha, because that's what you deserve. You know, something like that. Like that's, you could just imagine, that's what we as messed up humans would say. We would say all these things are going to come upon you because you didn't listen to what I was telling you and you should have listened, but you know, you're losers and you don't. So this is what's going to happen. But notice that's not what the Lord does. The Lord instead follows that up with, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. This was not what the Lord wanted to say. And you know what's interesting about this? Do you know this phrase here, your house is left unto you desolate, is actually a phrase that comes from the Old Testament. It's a quotation of Psalm 40, verse 15, and Psalm 69, verse 25. And do you know why that's interesting? Do you remember what the two most imprecatory psalms were? There's Psalm 109 and Psalm 69. And by the way, Psalm 40 is also imprecatory. And so what you have here is here's the Lord Jesus delivering all these imprecations, all these curses upon the rulers of the Pharisees. And he ends up by quoting an imprecatory psalm. And yet he shows the attitude with which he understood those psalms. For him, this was a tragedy to have to say these things. He mixed, was able to say these curses in love which I think is fascinating. 
you know, just like Ezekiel 18, where, where God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the sinner. Or Luke 19:41, when he looks at when the Lord Jesus looks at Jerusalem and weeps over the city because he wishes it didn't have to be that way. Even when he went to the cross, look at what he says. Jesus turning unto them said, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never give suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? The Lord Jesus was explaining, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. You know, that's why you have to weep for yourselves and for your children, because bad things are going to happen. You know, the Romans are doing these things in a green tree. You know, when things are good, when, when Jerusalem is doing well, what's going to happen when it's not? In the dry. And, you know, if you look at Mark 11, verses 13 to 14, verse 20, we see the Lord Jesus's interaction with the fig tree, representative of Israel, in which the fig tree, which was green, withers up and dries in a prophecy of what was going to happen to the nation. And so the Lord says, going to happen soon that things are going to get terrible and so even as he was going to the cross he said look here's the curse that's going to come on you and you know what my reaction to that is i weep over it and you should be weeping too he says and so even on the cross the lord says Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So the Lord Jesus was able to say these imprecations, these curses in love. I think it's interesting. You might remember from yesterday, I uh, talked about the Apostle Paul, and I said, oh, well, the Apostle Paul had, you know, no strong dissension about whether or not people should be circumcised, and therefore we should argue and yell at people and all that. That was how I used to think. Well, interestingly, the Apostle Paul is the same way, right? I mean, I, I used to love this passage. I thought it was awesome. You know, I thought this was a great insult. Like, this is what, this is what we should call people, you whited wall. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'd say, well, this is what Paul said. So this is what Paul says to the high priest, right? God shall smite thee, a whited wall, because uh, he commanded Paul to be struck contrary to the law. But I never noticed this. Look at what Paul says his attitude is towards the Jews, the unbelieving Jews. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. It's like the Lord. He wept over Jerusalem. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ from my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul wasn't saying, God will smite thee, thou whited wall. Ha, 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 ha. You know, this is what you're going to deserve. Or, you know, he didn't say, whew, man, it felt so good to insult him like that. Instead, it made him sad that he had to say something like that. So now let's talk about the Lord Jesus as our example. So what does all this mean for us? You know, we can see that, that 
the Lord said these things about his enemies. Paul says it about his enemies. And yet there was this balance of these imprecations, these curses mixed with love. So how does that affect us? Well, we know that the Lord Jesus is our example. So in Mark 8, verse 34, the Lord says, he who would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So we're told, follow the Lord Jesus. Okay. Uh, and I mean, this is how we understand the atonement, right? That the Lord Jesus was our example to follow him to the cross. Now, we don't just follow him in his death, right? He gave us an example in everything, in his life. And so after he washes the disciples' feet, look at what he says to them. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example. So we look at the Lord and we say, well, here's how he interacted with people. Here's how he talked to people. So we should do the same thing. And so if that's the case, well, then we die with him. We're raised with him. We live as he lived. So therefore, based on what we have seen, just as he loved his enemies, we love our enemies. And then just as he prayed that God would destroy them, we do the same thing. But I'm not sure that's the case. In fact, I'm sure it's not the case. But we're going to get there. Because it's interesting that, you know, we've been looking at the Lord Jesus and at Paul. And we're also told to follow Paul's example. You know, he wrote to the Corinthians, be followers of me. And I, you know, I don't think that was a principle just for the Corinthians only. He told them that again, be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And he also said that to the Philippians, right? So I think we can assume this is a general principle that the Apostle Paul said, you know, I follow Christ. So if you would like an example in front of you of what it means to follow Christ, look at what I'm doing. And so not only do we have an example in the Lord Jesus, but I think we can say that we also have an example in Paul. Be followers together of me. So it's interesting then that Paul does the same thing, right? Paul loves his enemies and prays that God will destroy them. And I think it's very easy. And for years and years of my life, I said, well, look, the Lord Jesus did this. This is how he spoke to the Pharisees. So, you know, I'm going to go and talk to other Christians who have false doctrines. I'm going to go talk to them like that. And the same thing, you know, you whited walls. Because that's what the Lord Jesus did. And that's what Paul did. And yet, I don't think that's right. You know, I think this is a fundamental misunderstanding of what's going on in the New Testament. And this is why it's so crucial that we do Bible study and we try and understand these things. You know, sometimes you hear people say stuff like, oh, you know, this people have issues with being too academic with scripture or, you know, scripture should all be just about applying it to our lives. And, and I think that is a complete misunderstanding of what the Bible is. It's a, it's a misunderstanding in which we are creating a difference between academic Bible study and applicable Bible study. And I don't think there's supposed to be that. Like, the Bible is meant to change our life so that when we do Bible study that some people might say is more academic, that's supposed to change our life. 
You know, it's not supposed to be like, oh, well, that's just academic Bible study and it doesn't mean anything. No, it's academic Bible study. And because it's Bible study, it should affect us, right? So we have, I think, you know, we look at these things and we have to try and figure out how does this all fit? You know, we have to do the Bible study to try and understand. So why is it that the Lord Jesus cursed people? and it acted in love. Is that what we're supposed to do? Why is it that Paul cursed people and yet could act in love at the same time? And I'm going to say, you know, to me, when I look back at myself for years and years where I said, well, Jesus does this, so I'm going to go yell at people, or Paul does this, so I'm going to go yell at people. This is one, it was one of those bang head on wall moments where I looked at it and thought, what have I been thinking for years? And this is where I should have been doing the Bible study and, and trying to understand how this all fits together. And I didn't for so long because this just doesn't work. You know, we can't say, oh, we're going to be like Jesus. We're going to be like Paul and we're going to love people and pray that God curses them at the same time. We can't do that because just think about this. You know, I'm sure that you've experienced this. Somebody does something in the ecclesia, right? Where you're kind of like, I don't know about that. You know, I, I don't feel real good that that person did that. So we start to say things like, hmm, you know, they kind of seem like a hypocrite. Or maybe they're like a viper, you know, they're, they're causing problems in the ecclesia. And then we might say, ah, you know, Lord, I, please just make them be quiet. I'm not saying, you know, that we pray that terrible things will happen to them, but we pray that God will start to silence them. And all of a sudden, instead of thinking about who they are as a brother or sister, now in our minds, they've been characterized as a hypocrite, a viper, you know, thorns in the side of the ecclesia. And I think the problem with that is, what if we're wrong? What if we thought that here they are causing all these problems, and yet we didn't actually know their motivation? Or we had misunderstood a biblical concept, and what they were doing was actually right, and we were wrong. I think this kind of attitude of, you know, I... I'm going to love them, but I'm also going to curse them. It doesn't work for us with our human nature because we just, we can't do it. I don't think we can balance love and curses. So I'm going to suggest, you know, these imprecations, these curses for us aren't biblical. Let me show you what I mean by that. This attitude of cursing people simply doesn't fit with what we're told to do. If you look at Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 30, this is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. You remember, look at this. The Lord Jesus says, pray for them which despitefully use you. And now <laughs> he's not saying pray that they'll be destroyed, right? That's, it's not a prayer for destruction. It's not a prayer for their torture that they'll melt like a snail. Like when the Lord says this, he means pray for their salvation. Right? That's why when he was on the cross, he gave that example of, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This wasn't just 
the Lord Jesus saying, you know, forget about everything they've done, right? Forgiveness is predicated, it's based on repentance. And so the Lord was saying, Father, lead these people to repentance for what they've done. That's the kind of prayer we're supposed to have. Pray for them which despitefully use you. And so look at this. When Jesus' disciples attempted to be imprecatory, when they tried to call down curses, look at what happened. Came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. They did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did, right? <laughs> Here, this is total imprecations, you know? The fire, the, the like, let's burn them up because of what they did. And Jesus says, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. You don't understand. Sure, this is the spirit of some of these Psalms, but that's not the spirit that you are of. That's not what you're meant to do, he says. Paul said the same thing, that believers are not to curse. Now, I, I have kind of a funny order here. The next verse on the screen is James, which I know, I just want to be clear, I know that Paul did not write James. <laughs> but, but this is where James says in James chapter 3 that, you know, you bless and curse from the same mouth. These things ought not to be, he says. Right? By implication, stop cursing. And that's what Paul says. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. So I feel like, you know, it's very clear, in fact, that we are told those Psalms where David prays that their table would be a snare, where David prays that their habitation would be desolate or that they would melt like a snail. Those aren't for us. Sure, they were messianic. They were about the Lord Jesus, but they were not about us. And that's important. That is, you know, huge in understanding this. So I think the question is, well, how does this all fit together? And in fact, the solution to me, I think is rather simple. Let's just think about what we know and put this down. So number one, both Christ and Paul curse their enemies, but love them at the same time, right? So that's what we established already. Number two, we have been called to follow Christ and Paul's example in our lives. But number three, we are not to curse. So I think these are the three things that we know. Jesus and Paul did it, and they could curse while being loving. We're told to follow them but we can't curse. Now we could just leave it at that. But I think that if that's all we do, then we're not going to have a very full understanding. Because knowing what you're supposed to do without knowing why you do it, I mean, isn't that legalism, right? And so we're gonna ask, our favorite question again, why? You know, why is it that Christ could do it, Paul could do it, and we can't? And yet we're supposed to follow Christ and Paul's example. Well, let's think about it. In what ways are Paul and Christ different from us? 
And then I think we can also add on there. And what about David too? I mean, David's the one who originally wrote these Psalms, right? So how are they different from us? Well, it's not that none of them were sinful. Apparently I'm really into double negatives in this class. It's not, it's not that none of them were sinful because right, that's only about Jesus, right? Paul obviously sinned, David sinned. It's not that they all lived in the first century. So, you know, it was like an era kind of thing because David didn't, right? But there is something that they all had in common. And I think that this is a key. All of them were moved by the Spirit to do what they did. And so they had special abilities, special privileges. I mean, look at this. Look at this ability. Can you imagine what this would be like if this is how it was for us? It says here in John chapter 2, Jesus did not commit himself unto them, unto all men, because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now that's amazing. You know, the Lord Jesus could look at somebody and know what they were thinking. And I know that that probably sounds funny, right? Because, you know, we're, we're used to this idea of, ooh, what if you could read people's thoughts or something like that? You know, that's like magic. But the Lord could do that. You know, there's, there's numerous times in scripture where it says, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, I mean, my favorite is, uh, it's not up on the screen. It's in Luke chapter seven. I just think this is awesome. When the Lord Jesus is invited to Simon the Pharisee's house, you remember that? He goes to Simon's house and uh, a woman who was a sinner in that city comes into the house, it says, and she anoints him, he washes his feet, wipes them with her hair, right? And Simon says, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this was. And he thinks that. And the Lord Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answers Simon's thoughts. How awesome is that, right? But that's what the Lord could do. Now, Peter does the same thing in Acts chapter 5, verse 3. This is with Ananias and Sapphira, right? Ananias says, oh yeah, we sold it for this much. And Peter says, well, you're dead. You just lied because I know that, you know, that's not true. He could read Ananias' thoughts and Paul could do the same thing. So in Acts chapter 13, when he's confronted by Elymas, the sorcerer, Paul turns to him and says, oh, full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? Now, that is not something we could say. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, could say it because he could look inside and he could say, wow, you know, I've just looked in you and I can see that your motivation is full of subtlety and mischief and that you've given into sin. But can you, can you imagine, like, if we use these imprecatory kind of things in the ecclesia and somebody stood up and said, oh, you know, I don't like what you're doing, you child of the devil, full of all subtlety and mischief. And you'd be like, what? You know, what are you doing? What are you talking about? And they'd say, oh, well, you know, I'm quoting Acts chapter 13. Like, this is why it's so important for us to understand, to have a framework by which we can understand the imprecations of Christ, the imprecations of Paul, because they're not just things that we can say. The Lord Jesus knew people's characters and their motivations. You know, he says to to the rulers of the Jews, he says, I know you. 
that you have not the love of God in you. We can't say that. And so John could call the Pharisees in Matthew 3, verse 7, you brood of vipers, right? Before you even met them. They just showed up. They didn't even say anything. And, and he says to them, you hypocrites, you vipers, right? And that's why godly reactions, I think, sometimes seem contradictory. You know, we look at things like Elijah mocking the prophets of Baal, and we're like, oh, man, is that what we're supposed to do? No, <laughs> we're not, because Elijah was moved by the Spirit, and that was, that's what was needed at that time. God laughs at the nations and their attempts to overthrow him. So should we, you know, go to Christian churches and say, ha, ha, you know, what you teach is so dumb? No, we shouldn't, right? Because that's not what, that's not the attitude we're supposed to have. But God can do it because he's God, right? Wisdom mocks those who despise her. Isaiah sarcastically derides false gods. Where he talks about, you know, one man uh, cooks his dinner on it and then he bows down to it, right? We can't do that. We are not to rejoice when our enemy falls. And yet, these specific cases are what God moved people to do with the Spirit, because that's what was needed at that time. That's not what we do. So God has a different standard, and so do those who are moved by the Spirit. You know, that's why he says, to me belongs vengeance. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Vengeance belongs unto me. And so when we look at the imprecatory psalms, is that, are those godly? Yes. Do those belong in scripture? Yes. Are they inspired? Yes. You know, was it right for David to write those things? Yes, it was. Are they Christ-like? Yes, they are. Is it what we should do? No. Instead, scripture's clear for us. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Do you see what this means? This means that when something frustrating happens in the ecclesia and we want to get up and we say, ah, that person, you know, is like a viper. They're going to cause problems in the ecclesia. That means that we say to ourselves, calm down and go talk to them in meekness. Because the servant of the Lord must not strive. We can't go to them ready to fight. But instead, we must be gentle unto all men. Because those curses aren't for us. And so we can wrap this up by saying we've seen that our God is a God of vengeance and that our God judges. But judging and anger, those are two ways of thinking that aren't part of the life of a follower of Christ. <laughs>